Yehuda Geber with another Jewish History Soundbites podcast. And um, we'll talk a little bit with uh, Shavuos coming up. And Shavuos, as in Vav Sivan, is not only just um, a, a, a nice yantif, a holiday, it's actually the yard site of the Baal Shem Tev, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tev, who it's hard to exaggerate the influence he has had and continues to have on modern Jewish life, on the Jewish history of the last 300 years or so. And, um, and, um, and the movement, both him as a personality and the movement that came later to be associated with his name, although he himself did not found the movement of Hasidus, but the teachings that he taught and the influence that he had on people eventually led to the founding of this movement or to the spread of this movement. And therefore, his influence is is almost almost unparalleled. There's he's pretty much up there with the um, the people top few people who had such a tremendous influence on on the course of Jewish history. So in order for us to get a little bit into the atmosphere of the Baal Shem Tev and uh, in honor of his upcoming yard site for Shavuos, maybe we'll devote a few, two or three, maybe more, we'll see what's necessary, um, uh, podcasts to um, getting into the world and the life and the teachings of the, uh, that the Baal Shem Tev taught to get the story in its in its uh, context, so we want to get to the background. We have to go all the way back to the world of the Polish kingdom of his time, and what's his time? So let's. Uh, there's not, not not really clear what year he was born. It was sometime in the last years of the of the 17th century, either 1698, maybe a drop earlier, maybe a drop later, maybe 1700. It's not clear exactly which year, but it was around that time, and he died. Um, on Shavuos of 1760. So the world of the Baal Shem Tov is looking at the first, pretty much the first half of the 18th century. The location of the Baal Shem Tov is in the Polish kingdom. Um, he lived in the area of Podolia, basically his entire life. Podolia is a district um, within the Ukraine, which at the time fell under the jurisdiction of the Polish kingdom. And um, he lived, lived in different areas, which we'll get to. But uh, we have to first understand what's going on there. What is this world? What is, what is happening at the time? The Polish kingdom was the home to the Jews of Eastern Europe for a large portion of Jewish history. And when the Pol- the basically, to overgeneralize, when the Polish kingdom did well, the Jews did well. When the Polish kingdom was in decline, it wasn't as ideal for the Jews any longer, both in an economic sense and the social sense as well. So the kingdom of Poland was actually one of the largest in Europe at the time. And the golden age of Polish Jewry uh, came to an end um, and the first stage came to an end with what was called the Gzeiroi's Tach Vetat, the Chmelnitsky massacres. Bogdan Chmelnitsky led a band of Cossacks and others, and eventually others joined in, and eventually it spread to all kinds of other pogroms, 
and, uh, and it was really a long, part of a longer process, which during the years of 1648 and 1649, it wiped out hundreds of communities, especially in the Ukraine, but really spread throughout the, the Polish kingdom. That was one of the first um, major downturns in Jewish life in Poland. And before they could really recover from the devastation and death and economic damage and, and the upheaval that it caused, they were thrown into another upheaval, this one religious and spiritual and social, in, and that was the false Mashiach of Shabzai Tzvi. And especially after the great devastation that the Gzairis Tachvetat caused, so the hopes were for Mashiach to come. The answer to such pain and suffering has to be that Mashiach is around the corner. And uh, Mashiach seemingly arrived in the form of the false Mashiach, Shabzai Tzvi. And um, it really fanned the hopes that finally the redemption would come, finally they'd get out of this this horrible situation of the exile of Golos, and Mashiach is here, the Geula has arrived. But as we know, the Mashiach did not yet arrive at the time. Shabzai Tzvi was a false Mashiach um, when the Turkish sultan realized that this fellow wanted to take Eretz Yisrael and make it into his own kingdom, because that's what the Jewish Mashiach was going to do, and that was under the jurisdiction of the Ottoman Turks at the time. So he gave him the choice in the year 1666 of either converting to Islam or facing the death penalty. And he converted to Islam. Now, Mashiach is not really supposed to convert to Islam. So this was kind of a disappointment in the aspirations that this guy is going to be Mashiach. But unfortunately, the, the movement didn't quite die down so easily and there were remnants of the movement that remained for the next hundred years uh, amongst the Jewish people. And th- this was something that had to be dealt with. This was something that, that existed within Jewish life. Um, certain sub-movements rose, uh, rose and fell that were post-Shabzai Tzvi movements in the Baal Shem Tov's own lifetime, in his last years even, it was still around, there was the Frankist movement, and that was actually in Eastern Europe, in the Ukraine, the famous burning of the Gemara, burning of the Talmud in 1757, instigated by the Jacob Frank and his followers who told the church about how the Talmud is anti-Christianity, which is a recurring theme, unfortunately, that people within the Jewish people go ahead and have the reasons for going to the church to to badmouth the Gemara, the Shas, the Talmud. And uh, there's a public burning in Kamenitz Podolsky in the Ukraine of the of the Gemara. That happens during the Baal Shem Tov's lifetime. And and this is definitely something that um that is, it still exists, the post Shabzai Tzvi era. Um, there's a weakening of the Kahila structure. The Jewish communities in Poland were very, very well structured during the Golden Age of Poland. They were very well um, well run, and every Jew belonged to a Jewish kahila. And there was a weakening of the kahila structure on several fronts. Because of the, the Tachvetat, communities had been destroyed and wiped out. 
that week in the Kehillahs, till they rebuilt, people moving, people rebuilding, there was an instability around. There's a weakening that goes on in all the various disputes in the post Shabbat Tzviyah, all the suspicions that this guy is really a Shabbat Tzviyah, and this Kehillah isn't to be trusted, and this Rav is really a secret practicing Shabbat Tzviyah, and this, and all these disputes and Machloiksim that took place at the time also weakened the Kehillah structure. So, so um, in addition, the the Jews of Poland during the golden era of the Polish Jewry, during the Kingdom of Poland in the pre-Tachvetat era, the Jews had self-autonomy. The Polish government, the kingdom, the kings, they set up this institution where the Jews have their self-government to collect taxes. For them, it was very convenient. They had all kinds of taxes that they collected from the Jewish communities. And it was very convenient to have a superstructure that oversaw the collection of taxes that flowed into the coffers of the Polish kings. The Jews used, utilized this opportunity, which was one of the most unique opportunities that they had throughout the history of Gullahs, that they had their own government in this country. And, um, and they created a system called the Vad Ha'arba Ha'aratzais, the Council of the Four Lands, which essentially was a Jewish form of self-government both for collecting taxes, both for running Jewish internal affairs, and also for rabbinical uh, affairs, um, questions that arose. They met twice yearly in Yaroslav and Lublin to discuss all the Klal Yisrael issues. And the Vad Ha'arbaratzis, both in the post-Tachvetat era and in the post-Shabzai Tzvi era, was weakened up to a point um, that eventually the Polish kingdom abolished the Vad Harbaratzis, which took place after the Baal Shem Tov died. It happened only in 1764. But that was really the final nail in the coffin. It was definitely weakened even prior to that time. So the Vad Harbaratzis is in a weakened state, and um, it doesn't have the same control and power that it had. And this is all reflective of what the Polish kingdom was going through. Remember that the Gzeres Tachvetat, what the Jews experienced as terrible pogroms, was essentially a revolt against the Polish aristocracy and the ones who suffered also from the the uh, the Cossacks, the Chmelnitsky pogroms, were the Polish Kingdom. And this is there's a internal weakness in the Polish Kingdom, which I'm not going to go into now. The history of the Polish Kingdom, which is not relevant uh, directly relevant to our topic. But the, the kingdom itself was weak, and the government was weak, the army was weak, the economy started going down, and all this um, weakened the Kahila structure as well. The economy does pick up. It's not like uh, the, all the Jews are poor at this time. That definitely is not the case. And not only that, but if we move directly to Mezhebizh, which is a place, the city, where the Baal Shem Tev lived for the last 20 years of his life, and we try to understand what type of city is it. Why does he settle there in 1740? This is when he spreads his Torah Sachasidas. This is when he teaches his students. And this is where he practices as a Baal Shem, healing people and helping them and taking care of the needs of the Jewish people. This is his main base of operations the last 20 years of his life. What type of place is it? So as it happens, if you go there today, and, and uh, really one of the reasons that... Um, that I chose to talk about this is because 
of all the many, many tours I do, and all the many, many places we visit across Europe. The Jews lived in everywhere in Europe, and we go to all kinds of places. But one of my favorites, personal favorite, and it's also reflective of the group's favorite, is going to Mezhebish, spending a Shabbos there, and experiencing it, and hearing the stories, and hearing the history, and connecting to all this. It's really a wonderful feeling, and uh, it's a special place, and it's really one of the one of the one of the most exciting uh, trips that we do through the Ukraine itself, and especially to spend a weekend, to spend the Shabbos, or even to spend a day um, in Mezhebish by the Baal Shem to, to hear what, what this whole thing was all about. So when you go there today, you do notice that it's a small shtetl. It gives the false impression that it always was a small shtetl, a small little town, insignificant on the map. On the other hand, as we're pulling in, we always notice this big palace, castle, fortress, now we know that a little shtetl, the Polish princes are definitely not going to build a huge castle, palace, fortress. So it must have not been a shtetl at some point. And the reality is, is that it was the 15th largest, it was in, I don't know, 15th largest, it was one of the, in the top 15 cities in the Polish kingdom at the time. And it was the largest in the whole sec- section of Podolia in the Ukraine. There was over 2,000 Jews, which in the context of the time was considered a large Jewish city. So you have here, it's a center of Jewish life. The town is owned by the Czartoryski uh, aristocratic prince of the Polish aristocracy. It was their property, and they're the ones who built this castle to defend the city. It was an important location. It sat on the on the on the Bug River, and uh, and it definitely was a central place, and that's one of the reasons the Baal Shem Tov settles there. It's not some um, what we would say favorfina place. It was not some abandoned little hole in the wall. It was actually an important city, a center of commerce, and that's one of the reasons why the Baal Shem Tov uh, settled there and um, and, uh, and 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 chose that place as the place for him to spread um, his message. So Mezhebizh is is a central city. Um, the the situation of the Jews in Poland at the time is not a hundred percent stable, but in certain ways it is getting better. Things seem to be improving. The Polish kingdom is weakening, and into this whole world of the post Shabbat Tzvi, the post Tachvatat era, the Balshemtiv makes his. His 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 place on the world stage, and what he and what he starts to spread is a new message because essentially he is a balshem. What's a balshem? A balshem at the time is a form of a doctor, someone a healer, a country healer. It's someone who is able to use his talents both as knowledge of 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 Kabbalah, of Shemus, of of other things that was common in the Polish kingdom at the time. There are many Baal Shem, both before the Baal Shem Tev and after the Baal Shem Tev. Again, Kabbalah is in a very interesting situation now. On one hand, there's this backlash against the Shabzai Tzvi era of misuse of Kabbalah. On the other hand, whenever Jews suffer a tragedy, this is a recurring theme throughout Jewish history, they turn to their inner spiritual world. And there's groups of of people who were actually called Hasidim, people who were considered Mikubalim, people, there were Chaburas, groupings of these secret societies, as it were, of people who were very spiritual, very into Kabbalah, learning Kabbalah, applying it, 
and, um, and they were considered the elite in many communities. And in many places, the shuls and the kihilas would support them. These people are holy people, and these people are, deserve the community's support. And there's evidence that the Baal Shem Tev was associated with these mikubalim, with these groups of mikubalim. And the Baal Shem Tev also is a Baal Shem. He's someone who helps people. If the people are sick, people need a bracha. They come and they... Um, and they uh, and they and they 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 they, uh, they they come to be healed, and he's known as a very good healer, and he's popular both in the regard that in the mo- at the most basic level that he is well known as someone who can help people. He can help people with what they need, and then into that whole mix, into that whole world of the Jewish people at the time, and into that whole mix of what the Baal Shem Tov is as a person. He's associated with the Mekubalim. He's associated as a Baal Shem. He's associated with someone who interacts with the people. He would, he did spend quite a bit of time alone in the Carpathian Mountains in the southern parts of Podolia of the Ukraine. But he also spent many years wandering the towns of the Ukraine, offering his services as a Baal Shem, which is how he made a living. And uh, he interacted with the people. And he saw their needs, he saw their troubles, he saw their struggles. And with all this context in mind, he comes to say, I have something new to teach, and I have something um, new to tell the Jewish people. And that's when we find the new Baal Shem Tev, the other side of the Baal Shem Tev, and that's what we'll discuss in the next podcast. You can, this was Yehuda Geber with another Jewish History podcast, um, Jewish History Soundbites. You can email me, YGEBSS, questions, comments, sources, you want to go visit these places like Mezhebizh or the Baal Shem Tev or any other places associated with Jewish history to learn about these amazing people and places, you can email me. Subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Don't miss an episode of our podcast. If you enjoy, give us a five-star rating. Share with your friends and family. And you can follow us on Twitter at JHistorySoundbites. And we hope you enjoy.